me just tell you how much I'm a fan of the church at Cane Bay. Your pastor's not going to tell you this, and he's not going to be happy that I'm telling you this, but did you know that you're famous in South Carolina? You are. Churches from all around South Carolina come and want to know how the church at Cane Bay can be on mission so well. In fact, they ask your pastor to come talk to them, to teach them how to motivate and get their people on mission, and I've just been a champion of yours for several years. And so it's just a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's been a pleasure to be with you for the past couple of weeks. Last week, Easter, it was just such a wonderful service. But I got to admit to you that this week it's been, are you a box checker kind of person like I am, where on the calendar, Easter's seven days old now. And so we came to Easter, we checked it off, and now it's in the past when really Easter's, it should be the defining moment. It's the divine hinge point for every believer in Christ. And if you're not a believer and you were here last week and you heard this awesome story of the parable of the prodigal son, that's the hinge point for every believer. I mean, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior should define everything we do in life. Can you say amen? Everything we do, how we live, how we work, how we play, how we raise our kids, how we treat our finances, how we treat that difficult neighbor or that ugly coworker, Easter should define all of that. And yet, the calendar says it's in the past, and I'm already looking to graduations and vacation for the summer. And I just, all this week, I've had to struggle to remind myself it's still Easter. I mean, the tomb is still empty, isn't it? I mean, we still have eternal hope in Christ, don't we? And so it's still Easter, friends. I just kept thinking all week, why is it so hard for me to, to, to settle on that? I mean, it's the Super Bowl for the church, right? Christmas and Easter, we have the biggest crowd. We've got the greatest opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus. And then when it's gone, we kind of breathe a sigh of relief and we move on to the next thing. It's just hard for me. I think about the person or the people maybe sitting in this room last Sunday who it was your first Easter that you heard the parable of the prodigal son and, and you, you received the gospel and, and you were born dead in your sin, the Bible says, and you received the gospel last week and you yourself were resurrected. And your tomb is now empty and you're a new creature in Christ. And I wonder, what would we say to that person? What would be the next natural conversation to a new believer? And I thought, well, it's got to be the same conversation that we have with the veterans in the room, right? What, what framework could we give somebody as a new believer? As somebody that's walked with Christ for 30 years, it, it's the same tracks to run on, and it's marriage. And you're going, what? Maybe you saw the video and you just went, I'm checking out, rolling my eyes. You're talking five weeks, we're going to be talking about marriage so let me just welcome a few groups into the room. Singles, this message is especially for you. Married couples, this message is especially for you. Maybe the devastation of divorce has shattered your picture of marriage. Or maybe the tragedy of losing a loved one has just left you wondering with unanswered questions, what? This message is especially for you. I'm begging you to hang out with us for the next five weeks. You know, what's interesting about that story that Charlie told last week, the parable of the prodigal son, is 
Easter's always available to us. It's just a moment away. In that story, the son said in the pigsty of his life, I will return to my father. You remember? If you weren't here last week, go out on the website and listen to it. It was a wonderful message. And he returned. And, and the difference is, in that story, the father says he saw him a long way off, right? The father saw him and he ran to him. This beautiful picture of God chasing after us. You know what the truth of the matter is? Our father is right there in the pigsty with us. And the glorious part of this is he's an, he doesn't get any of it on him. So we don't have a long trip home if we want to turn from the pigsty to the Father. It's a moment's decision. And Easter comes real for us. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that our God is not miles away? He's not standing on the porch going, if Jeff would only come home, as soon as I see him, I'll run to him. He's right there with me in my pigsty. All I need to do is repent of the pigsty, and he's right there. So what's the next natural conversation? It is marriage. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to work our way there as, as I talk through this, but I want to kind of lay a foundation. We've got a lot of work to do this morning, um, and so I, just, I want to keep going back to this Easter thing. that Last, year, last week, Charlie said, if, the, if the, the fact of the resurrection is true, if it's true, and it's historically true, it's been proven countless times, then that means several things. That means we have a loving creator, miracle-working God. And I want to give you the message, the, the message here at the, at the beginning. Here, here's where I'm going. Here, here's the pitch. Here's all my cards. You ready? God wants to marry you. I have, a, I have a Labrador that does this. And maybe that's the way that you're looking at me. God wants to marry me? Are you kidding me? Yes. No, I'm not. I'm serious. God wants to marry you. That's how he has structured his relationship with us. It's how he structured our relationship with him. It's through the context of the covenant relationship of marriage. And so let me just give you kind of a 30,000 foot flyover of scripture just to kind of prove it to you, but call me a liar. I want you to spend the rest of the week proving this to be true. You ready? So in Genesis 2, we see the very first relational thing that God does with Adam and Eve. He creates his people, and then he says this, it's not good that you're alone. And most of us go, yeah, we're supposed to be married. Well, that's true, but not in the way that you might think. It is not good that we are alone. We are meant to be in community. And then Genesis 3 happens, and it's tragic, right? And then the sin causes us to quickly adulterate our relationship with him, right? We chase after other lovers, other gods, and God starts saying, you've lost the love of your youth. Come back to me. Come back to me. You're cheating on me. You get to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, and it's this kind of gut-wrenching story of, a, of a, a man. It's a true story of a man named Hosea, and that, but it ends in this beautiful picture of how God chases after us as his adulterous, rebellious bride. Read the book of Hosea. It's beautiful at its ending, but it's just gut-wrenching in its application. You get to Isaiah chapter 62, and it says this, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God 
rejoices over you. We just sang three songs, and I hope you had a moment to kind of connect and turn your affections toward him just for a moment. Look what he was doing over you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? And he uses the context of marriage to say that. And then the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. He's got some really tough language there about divorce. Hate, I hate divorce. And there's a lot of arguments about why that is. Let me just give you what my take on that is. One of my favorite pastors he's, uh, is a guy named Crawford Loritz. And in the DVD series, The Art of Marriage, you might have went through it. He says this, marriage tells the truth about who God is. And I think he's exactly right. Marriage does tell the truth about who God is. And so if marriage tells the truth about who God is, divorce tells a lie about who God is. Are you with me? And he hates that. And so let me just, let me just tell you, if, if you've had the tragedy of divorce strike, let me, let me just wallow in that with you for a moment. So before I was 18, I had five different dads. Seven over the next few years after that. And my mom loved us kids. I have a brother and a sister, and, and she was passionate about us. But the, some of the, the men that came along, it, just, it was just, they were kind of knuckleheads. And, and so here's what I learned. Here was, here was the philosophy of relationships for me growing up. When things get tough, leave. It was easy. It was no emotions most of the time. It was just us kids going, oh, we need to pack our stuff up. Oh, cool, we get to go stay with Grandma again. No big deal. Kind of fun. One after the other. And so I graduate high school. I go off into the Air Force. I get married. Things get tough. I leave. And now I'm left going, ow. It didn't hurt like that when I was a kid. Why does it hurt so much now? And then my bride, Pam, sitting right over there, 21 years this August we'll be together. We get married. Things get tough. And I went, again? Are you kidding me? And busted and broken, I move in with a friend of mine. And I'm just left going, what is wrong with me? Are you that mad at me? Anybody been there? And in that 13, 14 month, divorce papers in hand, clocks ticking. And a friend of mine invited me over to his house one Saturday. I was born and raised in church. Even through all the divorces that we went through as a family, my mom had us in church, but I'd never heard the gospel. And that Saturday morning, my best friend shared the gospel with me. And Easter happened. And I was transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And what I didn't know was the same thing had happened to my wife. And then over the next several months, God just began to woo us, propose to us, date us. And he drew us to himself as he drew us to one another. And now we've got a 17-year testimony that God is a miracle-working God. Can you say amen to that? So I'm there with you in Malachi chapter 3. I hated what had happened. 
But God is resurrecting God. Then you get to the, the New Testament, and, and God's way more open about it. He calls us the bride of Christ. John 3, John the Baptist says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, talking about Jesus and his church. And then all through the New Testament, there's teaching after teaching after teaching of amazing marriage application. And then you get to the last book of the Bible, Revelations. And it, and it says that we're going to culminate all of history with one event. And it's a wedding reception. The wedding supper of the Lamb. So we start out the front of the book, Genesis, with a marriage. And now we bookend all of history with a wedding reception. And then the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, it says this. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Who are we talking to? Our groom, Jesus. We're tired of being apart from you. Come. Let the one who hears this, say, come. Maybe you this morning, you don't know the Lord as your husband. You're not married to him. You can say, come. You're thirsty? Come. This water here, the water of life, is free. You know why? Because Easter paid the price for it. It's free. If you would just receive it. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And I want to just give us a foundation. I need to tell myself here because I'm going to tiptoe into next week's sermon. I'm going to borrow a few things and then I'm going to come back. And it's okay. I've already got permission to do this. And so if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2. And I believe we have Bibles for you. Is that right? If there are new guests, they stop by a table there. We'd love to give you a Bible. And if not, it's going to be on the screen. So let me read Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. And uh, and then we're going to camp out on a few things. It says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land. Was watering the whole face of the ground. That must have been pretty cool to see. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust, of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, verse 10 through 14 talks about four rivers, and it's really pretty, but let's skip to verse 15. Just for time's sake, because I'm a blabbermouth. The the Lord God, verse 15, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, we're going to talk about this, work it and keep it. That's the first two words that God says about us. Let me just tell you a really cool way to study Scripture. It's called the doctrine of first mention, or the theory of first mention, and it's really easy. It says this. If you want to know what God says about anything, all you have to do is find the first place it was mentioned in Scripture, study it deeply, and then go to the second place that it was mentioned, and the third, and then fourth, and then you get to Revelations, and then you look back over Scripture, and you now know what God has to say about whatever, marriage. And that's the first, Genesis 2.15, that's the first two words that God has to say about you and I. Work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, verse 16, saying... You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Stop for a moment. This is Genesis 2. Has sin entered the world yet? No. So everything is perfect. So in a perfect world, how could something be not good? This is where English kind of throws us for a loop a little bit because it doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that it's not appropriate that you're alone, Adam. In other words, I've made room for marriage and community in your life, Adam, so it's not appropriate that you're alone. Verse 18, or I'm sorry, verse 19. Then it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God needed Adam to see something here. You're not like everything else, Adam. You're different, Adam. I created you last, Adam. You're the one that I said it's very good when I created you, Adam. And I need you to see that you're different. It's an exercise. And so he gets it. In verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Oh, what a beautiful picture. God creates Adam whole, and then he takes a piece of him, and then he creates woman. It's not good that you're alone, Adam. And then he brings her back to him, and they are one flesh. Beautiful picture of marriage. Let's read about it. Adam said this in verse 23. This is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And she should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then we get to these two verses, very common in weddings. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And I want to read verse 25 together. You ready? And the man and his wife were both, and they were both what? Naked and not ashamed. Amazing story or picture here of marriage. But remember I said that this message is for everybody, right? And so I want us to see three foundational truths from this large passage of the creation story, but I want to camp out on the third one. The first one is this. We are created in God's story for his glory. We are created in God's story for his glory. We're the pinnacle of God's creation, and we are to point our lives to him. Look at Isaiah chapter 43 where it says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I formed, it's what? For my glory. Our lives should point to him. Our lives should magnify, glorify him. Everything about our lives should be pointing to him. We are in his story for his glory. The second principle is this. We have a purpose in this story. Remember verse 15? He took the man and put him in the garden to do two things. Work it and keep it. We have a purpose in the story. We're going to talk about this in week three or week four. Here's the third purpose, and I want to camp out here. We are designed to be naked and unashamed. This is the way God created us. Go back to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Let me talk to just the married couples for a moment. How cool would this be? 
to have a marriage like this. To be naked and unashamed. All the husbands in the room are going, yeah, come on, preach it. It does mean that. I'm not saying it doesn't, but let me tell you what the word naked there means. It means laid bare. Completely transparent. You know everything about me, sweetheart. And I'm not ashamed at what you see. You follow me? Think of the energy we would save if we could have a marriage like that. No posturing. No makeup. No defending. No excuses. Just laid bare. Honey, I'll never have a six-pack ab, and I don't care. I'm unashamed at what you see. That's a beautiful picture. Singles, divorced, widowed, how cool would it be to interact with people? How much energy would you save just being real, just being transparent and with no shame? That's how you were created. Let me prove it to you. Let me ask you two very important questions. First one is this. Weren't they already naked and unashamed? Adam, when he got to the wedding, wasn't he already naked and unashamed? I mean, before Eve was ever created, did, did he have clothes on for some reason? Did, did God make Adam and go, listen, you're supposed to be tough. Real men don't cry. You got to buck it up. Do some push-ups. P90X, buddy. You better be a real man. Real men don't cry. And then when he got to the wedding, he's like, okay, Adam, you need to be naked and unashamed because she's not as strong as you. He already was naked and unashamed. And so when we get to verse 25, Adam's like, yeah, I know that. I was already naked and unashamed. And then it says that Adam was put into a deep sleep while, while God created Eve. And we don't know how long he was asleep. It could have been hours, days. And Eve was the only person walking with God in the garden. Wasn't she already naked and unashamed, ladies? So she gets to the wedding day. He walks her down the aisle. And he, she, they, she hears God say, you're to be naked and unashamed. And she looked at him and went, of course. I already know how to do this. Here's the principle. I need you to interact with me here. Who are we naked and unashamed with first? You see that? pretty plain. We walk naked and unashamed with the Lord first. And we've got to get that right or nothing else works. You walk naked and unashamed with the Lord and then from that relationship, from that marriage, all else will flow. But you've got to get it right. That's got to be step number one, step number two, step number 300 We've got to walk naked and unashamed with the Lord first. Let me come at it from another way. Deuteronomy is a book of the law, right? This is God saying, you will do this. And in chapter 4, Deuteronomy says that God feels about us in this way. He said, I'm jealous for you. In fact, it says that his jealousy is a consuming fire. Now, most people say, yeah, he's mad at us all the time. That's not what it says. First John tells us God is love, right? So God is love. His whole, list, his whole being is love. And so when something consumes him like fire, it's not anger. It's his love for you. 
And so he says this, my, I feel you, about you this way. I'm jealous for you, and my love for you consumes me like fire. And then in Deuteronomy 6, he says this, here's how you're going to feel about me. And it says this. Let me read it to you, and it'll, it'll be on the screen. Verse 3, hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. And that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, again, listen to me, listen to me. The Lord our God is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all. Say all. All of your heart and with all of your soul and with of your mind. The word all there, it means all. Matthew 22, they came to Jesus and they said, what's the greatest command? Now listen, Jesus had over 600 options here. What's the greatest command? And Jesus said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then he added something. He said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the second important question. If you were to fulfill the law, the command of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, would there be room in your life for another human being? Yes or no? Think about it. This is how God says life works. If you walk naked and unashamed with me first, love me with all you have. The answer to the question is no. There's not room in your life for another human being if you love God with everything that you have. So how do we love others, you might ask? Jesus tagged it and said, and the second is like it. And that phrase there literally means it corresponds to, it flows from, it's hinged upon the first. So we can say it this way, love God so that you can love others. You follow me? We walk naked and unashamed with him first so that we can walk naked and unashamed with our spouses and the people around us. You with me? Love God so that we can love others. Oftentimes in, in counseling, I'll ask couples whose marriages are obviously hurting or else they wouldn't be there. I'll say, how often do you pray for your marriage if they're believers? And I get the answer, oh, all the time. What percentage of your prayer life is consumed by your marriage? Oh, 80, 90% of the time. Some say 100%. It's all I pray about. I just asking God to restore my marriage. And is that a good prayer? <laughs> yes, it's a great prayer. But if I'm building this case that you're to be married to the Lord, the bride of Christ first, what if I were to ask you about that relationship? How's that marriage going? So let me play God for a moment, very carefully. And I say, I'll miss you. Hadn't seen you, hadn't heard from you in a while. I'm, I'm still here. I'm right here in the pig pen with you. And you keep asking me to bless your, your marriage to your husband or your wife. 
but yet our marriage is distant. What do you think my answer is going to be? No. I love you too much to say yes to that prayer. If I say yes to that prayer and bless your marriage to your spouse when our marriage is a wreck, I'm giving you permission to be an adulterer to me. And I don't want you cheating on me. Does it make sense? I want you more than he does. I love you more than she does. Our marriage has to work. That's the foundation. And then from our marriage, you subside my jealousy. And I know that I've got you. You can ask me anything you want. You want your marriage to your spouse blessed? Oh, done. Are you, are you with me? It's, it's, this is the gem. Right? This is the holy grail of it all. Love God so that you can love others. It's like a bucket. And you fill that up. Jesus said this interesting thing. He said, if you come to me, if you thirst, out of you will flow rivers of living water. Where do those rivers flow to? Everybody around you. If we were to stack buckets on top of one another, and this is kind of your God bucket, and your marriage is under here, you fill this up to overflowing, it's going to spill out onto your marriage. The most loving thing that I could tell my wife, Pam, and my kids, and you, my friends, is, baby, you're a distant second place in my life. And because of that, she gets a better husband. I get a better wife. When she says to me, baby, you're a distant second place in my life, my love for the Lord just, it, it, my love for you pales in comparison to my, my relationship, my marriage to him. It is pretty darn sexy. It doesn't work any other way, friends. And it's not that hard. But it is a decision. It's a priority. And I know I, in a room this size, I, I'm sure there's a ton of marriages that are just a wreck. But I'm not really interested in just the, I'm not interested in just this. I'm interested in your relationship with the Lord, your marriage to Him. Have you become His bride? Easter was the grandest of marriage proposals. It's God saying, I love you so much, I'll give up anything to have you as my bride. You look at the pigsty, and you look at what he has to offer. You look at the pigsty. The decision's pretty clear. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so I want everybody in this room to respond at some level to the proposal. So just in your own head, or maybe on your, in your notes, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your relationship with the Lord if it were a marriage? How's your communication? How's your intimacy? And then skip down a line, and then give your own marriage a number. One of two things you're going to find. Either your walk with God is probably pretty low, and your marriage might be kind of high. In that case, it's clear that we're walking in adultery, right? 
or you're going to find your walk with the Lord low and your marriage even lower. It takes that long to respond. If you haven't responded to the proposal, say yes today. Prodigal son, all he had to do was turn. It's not some long journey. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up, go get a degree, get a job. It doesn't matter. Remember the dad in that story? He clothed him right there with all the muck from the pigsty. He clothed him right there. He didn't wait for him to take a shower. That was one of the most poignant points from last week. You can do the same today, only it's not a long journey. Just like that. If you are a believer, just reflect on what I'm saying. Is your marriage to the Lord? How is it doing? What are you praying about these days? So, lastly is this, and I'll close. The worship team wants to make their way. I'd love to talk with you. In fact, Charlie's got a team of folks who would love to talk with you. Let me dare you to do something. I dare you not to leave this building without having somebody to talk to, pray with. Questions about salvation? We'd love to talk with you. Questions about marriage, counseling, you name it. Love to talk with you. Charlie will have a team right over here, is that right? There'll be several people over here. I dare you not to leave this building. I dare you to be so bold to come for prayer, to ask questions, just chat. This series is about marriage, friends, no doubt about it. And we're going to talk about some great marriage applications things. But if we don't get this week right, we're in trouble. God wants to marry you. That's a fact. We get that right. We're home free. I'm not saying marriage is going to be easy. My wife's got a lot of growing to do. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She's in the room too. How stupid was that? We drove separately, so okay. At least I got a ride home. I got a lot of growing to do. I'm 52 and I still got to shake off a lot of that junk that I grew up with. But if I get my first marriage right, I'm home free. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. And he makes the same promise to you. Friends, Easter is still Easter. The tomb is still empty. Bend down and look in. There's nothing there. He's alive. He's risen. And he wants to marry you. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for making it so simple for simpletons like me. That a story like the prodigal son just gives me the easiest of steps to just turn and in the muck and the mud and the stupidity of my choices, I can just extend a hand and say yes to you and you will clothe me, you will clean me up. And God, I pray across this room that people make these decisions this morning. God, hound them this morning. Don't let them leave this building knowing that they should get prayer. Hurting marriages, hurting lives, let them come. If they thirst, let them come. In Jesus' name, amen.
want to provide you guys with a, just a little time of reflection, a little time to spend with the Lord, or, or maybe talk to your spouse, or come and, and speak to one of our team over here. So let's just take a couple of moments and, and, and have some time to reflect on where is our relationship with our God this morning.